Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll hear us every Monday at 10 a.m. at prn.fm. That's the Progressive Radio Network. And my special guest today is Rachel Fulton Brown. Rachel, how are you? I'm lovely. Thank you for having me. Great. My pleasure. So I encountered you, I guess, in some Twitter or Facebook discussions and then looked at your, uh, you know, YouTubes and stuff. And I'm delighted that you're available to uh, speak with us. And looking you up, I see that you're a associate professor of medieval history at University of Chicago. So what do you teach and what does it mean to you? Uh, I teach the culture of the Middle Ages. And when, you know, so when you're asking me, what do I teach? I'm like, I teach everything. <laughs> um, I, one of the things that I realize is my great um, pleasure in, in thinking in, as a historian as opposed to thinking as a Christian or um, you know, in, some of, in some of my scholarship when I'm trying to show you what it's like to be inside of a devotional world. As a historian, I'm always making sure that I'm grounding myself in knowing as much about the culture as I can. So and your your listeners can check up check on my my homepage, um, which if you you said you found me on the internet. So if you go on the internet and, and look for Rachel Fulton Brown, you'll find my my academic homepage. And I've set I've put syllabi for all of the courses that I teach there. And you can see the range of things I've I've offered classes in. I've done animals in the Middle Ages, war in the Middle Ages, education, um uh, I, I'm doing a class right now on medieval England. Um, my graduate courses tend to be uh, more specialized in the history of Christianity, uh, biblical exegesis, um, liturgy, devotion. Um, I'm right now in the middle of working on a number of courses on virtues and vices and towns and city life. So, you see, I say I, I teach everything, but okay. but, well, but the... But the, the 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 problem for me is always, you know, a, a kind of how do you understand yourself from within the perspective of the culture that you're studying? So it's a very I, I've been told people ask me, well, do you do a phenomenological approach? Is it ethnographic? It's it's somewhere in the in between all of those. Interesting. So let me ask you a, a Middle Ages question, and that is it's generally held that our culture is a result of a confluence of the Greco-Roman and the Hebraic. But I gravitate to Oswald Spengler's point of view that the West is a different and separate culture that begins in the Middle Ages. And he says that a culture begins by laying down its epic poems and its temple form, which for the West, he would say, is the Arthurian romances and the Gothic cathedrals. Does that make sense to you? Um, yes and no. Um, I do agree with him that the, the West, as we have it now, is primarily an invention of Europe in the Middle Ages. Um, the, I mean, the, 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 the challenging thing there is that the, the, the Christians in the early Middle Ages looked to both 
the Greco-Roman tradition and to obviously to to the the scriptures for their own imagining of who they were. So I said I was teaching a course on medieval England right now, and we just spent the first half of the the course on the the Anglo-Saxon period, the period between the conversion of the kingdoms of of Kent and um, Mercia and Northumbria, um, eventually Wessex, to, um, to Christianity. And one of the things that's been really tricky for the students is understanding how much even in that period, the old English period, the you know period of, I mean, you'd say national epic is Beowulf a national epic. During that period, what the the um, people on the island were doing was imagining themselves into the stories of the Old Testament, and they're you know translating the Psalms into Old English so that they have those texts constantly in their imagination. They're also, of course, doing this in Latin. So, you know, they're training themselves in reading the, the Latin classics. They, they know Virgil. They know um, Augustine. They, they read Gregory the Great. It, that the, 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 the problem is always, you know, historians, if you want to get a group of historians in a room going, start talking to them about periodization. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. Because they will, they will be constantly then arguing over where the boundaries of the story should properly fall. And, you know, I, I try in my own... I, I focus on the Middle Ages in my in my classes, but I always point out to the students, you know, modern history begins with the invention of writing, right? And once you have writing in human in human culture, you're then able to talk about various things that you can't see solely from the archaeological record. And so, civilization is the whole of that um, process that we can see now clearly through the cultures that have developed writing. Interesting. So let me. Uh try something that might be, um, you, as a Christian, you might disagree with, but suppose I said that, you know, we have, we put Greek and Roman columns on our buildings up until a uh, hundred years ago. And uh, that, but the architecture inherently was not Greek or Roman. Uh, that was just stuck on. And uh, suppose I said that Originally, Christianity was an invading uh, Middle Eastern religion of authority, and it evolves over a period of time to become a religion of uh, compassion and love as it interacts with uh, European tradition. Does that make sense? You keep asking these these multi-layered questions, so that was <laughs> that was. That was both a question about architecture and a question about the the spread of Christianity. I'll I'll take the second one first. Yeah. No, I disagree. Um, and and here um, with Chesterton is actually really G K Chesterton is often a good starting point for people thinking about you know the paradox of Christianity. And he has a lo lovely essay in in Heresies on how people tend to imagine that they know what paganism was like. Um, but what he, he points out is like the only the only thing that ancient paganism, right, the only thing that survives to to the present from pagan classical antiquity is, in fact, Christianity and and, and recognizing that Christianity developed, you know, you're you're saying it's ancient Near Eastern, you know, um, imposition in, in onto the rest. Well, we can we can go there. But it, it, at least in the empire, the the reality of the development of Christianity is it develops in competition and contrast with the claims of paganism. And the thing that Chesterton points out is that what Christianity brought was was um, a, a, the the claim that God loves us, right? That that right. they're you know that the, the driving force of 
you know, existence is God's love for his creation. And however much you may admire, you know, the Stoics and, and you know, the, the philosophical, the high philosophical pagans, they do not have that sense of being creatures of a loving God. So the, 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 the version of Christianity that you gave me is, oh, it's this imperial imposition and such. Again, I can go back to the course that I'm teaching right now in medieval England. That is not the way Christianity came to the Anglo-Saxons. It came in the person of Augustine, who was sent as a monk by Gregory the Great with pretty much, you know, zero authority. And he's, he he shows up. Ethel Ethelwold of, um, sorry, Ethelbert of Kent welcomes him because Ethelbert's already married to a Frankish princess who is Christian. But the power on the side, you know, who's like military authority. It's 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 on Ethelbert's side. He's king of he's king of Kent, and he could have simply sent those missionaries away and, and you know or killed them or stolen their stuff. Um, that the the early missions into the Germanic territories come with people that are willing to to be murdered um, in order to preach to preach the word. Now, you know the the, the kingdoms of medieval Europe develop over the centuries into more significant um, governments. And, and into the you know the modern nation states, but early on they're pretty weak. Right. So um, let's uh, jump away from <laughs> jump away from the history, which you know more about a lot more about than I do. And uh, you're an academic teaching medieval and Christian history, and at the same time uh, you're a Christian. And how does academia treat you for that position of yours? Well, they hired me. <laughs> well, that's um, a good sign. Yes, and I mean, but I was. This is. I'm. I'm in a sort of funny position as as one is when you've been in an institution for a very long time. I was hired at the University of Chicago in 1994, um, and I'd say you know the faculty who hired me were delighted that I was interested in teaching in the history of Western civilization core program that we have. Um, they were very impressed with the um, sort of technical detail I brought to my study of things like liturgy and biblical exegesis and prayer, you know, that I considered how many manuscripts different chants were um, carried in, that I was very interested in making very close readings of particular texts and understanding the kinds of narrative that the authors were drawing us into and so forth. So, you know, in my early work, I was doing things that were, you know, they're sympathetic to the the, the more recent work that I've done, but de dealing with, I think, um, problems that the, the that my colleagues at the time could see as fitting within the narrative turn in, you know, history that we were trying to figure out how to think about narrative again in history, turning, you know, fitting, fitting with the, the um, interest in literary criticism that was uh, live in the early nineties. And I was aware of the fact that I was studying, you know, biblical exegesis as a form of, you know, a, a, a sort of literary, literary commentary and so forth. So I was able to translate some of the things that I was concerned about in those early years into terms that I think people felt more comfortable with. Um, after I finished my first book and, and was more aware of the, you know, the contemplative and intellectual and spiritual commitments that I had to showing people what I saw in the text that I was reading, I had to develop new methodologies for, you know, getting inside 
this this experience and one of my one of one of the sort of blessings and curses that I had um, was a, a year funded by the Mellon Foundation to sit in on psychology classes. Uh, this was yeah. back in 2004, and I was very interested in you know seeing what kinds of techniques in in that discipline were being used to you know study cognition, study social understanding. I took courses on you know. Um, uh, psychology of language and so forth. And I, I came out of it realizing that I needed to develop my own sort of rhetorical mode to help readers see the kinds of things that I was seeing in my text. So my most recent work has had, you know, more people have been a little anxious about it because I say, imagine yourself, you know, praying, excuse me, praying the hours of the Virgin from within this, this um, imaginative frame of imagery and, um, you know, sort of focus on the Virgin Mary and the way in which the Virgin Mary shows particular um, aspects of the creator and his relationship with her and so forth. And it, it, it has been only in this more recent work that, that people have started to say, wait a minute, what's she up to? Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. So let's talk about uh, the Virgin Mary. What is, who is she? What is her role? What's our importance in our culture today? Well, in our culture today, I think she's been lost. Um, oh. And and it, particularly in, I'd say, you know, maybe not in, in Mexico, for example, or in, in um, Latin America or in Africa or in China, but in the, the cultures, the, the aspect of Christianity that comes out of, you know, European culture, um, thanks to the Reformation, both the English church get rid of her devotionally for the most part. Um, and, and the Lutherans complicate it because Luther on the one hand is interested in her as, as mother of God, but less interested in her as queen of heaven. Right. So my sense of her in, in the place, in, the place she has in Christianity is she's there from the beginning in Luke. I mean, that there's, there's a story of the Annunciation. There's a story of her um, being told that she, you know, has been chosen to be the mother of God and and saying to the angel, let it be to me. So which in the Christian tradition is understood as her consent, right? That it's it's extremely important theologically that God not simply take flesh from her, but that he he because she is his creature and his and a soul um, that she must give her consent. And and that that story there in Luke for me is, is you know, the, the persistent puzzle. It's like, why does why is there a story about Mary? in Luke at all. It doesn't need to be there. There's no, you know, reason if you think about the way often modern Christians speak is a, we only need Jesus. We don't need Mary. Why are you praying to Mary? It's like, well, why is she in the earliest tellings of who Jesus is, right? And in my in my most recent book, Mary in the Art of Prayer, my my purpose is to show you the way in which she is the frame for understanding who Jesus was. And and I I frame in a lot of different ways. There's a um in the in the commentary tradition um you understand who Jesus is because for example in the new testament there are all these references to he's fulfilling the scriptures right and so you look back in the old testament and you find different prophecies and different you know descriptions of the messiah and those are meant to help us understand who Jesus was saying he was well it's a similar sort of process with mary that understanding why you need to know who the mother of the Lord is, 
is also part of the tradition. She's the, the the mother of the king who stands beside his throne and crowns him on the day of his his betrothal. That's in that's a verse from the Song of Songs that's then used as describing Mary's relationship to Christ. Um, she's in the Psalm um, 44, 40, number 45 in the um, Hebrew numbering, where she is again the queen mother standing beside the throne. In the in the medieval in the Orthodox and medieval tradition, she becomes all of these. And you like this architect. I know you like architecture. <laughs> um, all of these metaphors for the place where God becomes present. And then you realize in the medieval tradition, both Orthodox and Latin, um, she's mainly the temple. Um, and um, in, in that context, she's the Holy of Holies. She's the Ark. She's the throne of the presence. And I say, in if you don't understand that, her role in Christianity in those terms, you don't understand what the New Testament is actually claiming about Jesus, that he is the Lord become present in his temple, visible now to his people. Interesting. So um, the, as you just described it, is this present more in Catholicism than in Protestantism? Is it something that's lost to most people? Uh, how do again? How do you see these ideas living in the world today? So I've I've had the good you know the good fortune the grace I don't know how to say it right but it's a bit of gift um, to talk to many Catholics over the last couple of years. Um, I I actually grew up Presbyterian and so I grew up with this you know deep interest in studying the scriptures and that has been what all of my scholarship on Mary has been about. It's like how was how were the scriptures used to talk about her in the Middle Ages? And you recognize that for Protestants, that's a that's a very challenging claim to say, well, she's not in the scriptures. How can you find her there? Um, the again, the Orthodox and and I say medieval because it's not quite the modern Catholic tradition. The Orthodox and medieval Latin tradition is to find Mary everywhere in Scripture, and um, that was the way of reading Scripture that the Protestants utterly rejected. Right? They just said, well, these are made up interpretations. She's not there. Um, and even though modern Catholics still are a little aware of the way in which she's, you know, described in, in these metaf metaphors, like as the gate, the closed, the gate of Ezekiel, um, or the, you know, that's opened only for the king of glory, or um, that she's the burning bush in which Moses saw the Lord. They don't really know why all that imagery is there. And so when I've given talks, they're like, wow, this is, I've never heard this before. So what I say is that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm engaged in an exercise of just showing people what was in the older tradition. And it's, it's been curious for me as a, as a scholar, because I'll say, these are the things that are omni, omnipresent in the medieval poetry about her, in the art, in the, in the architectural claims about her as, you know, you know, churches dedicated to her and so forth. And my colleagues will say, oh, no, 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 that's just a small part of who she was. And I'm like, no, it's it's literally everywhere. Once you realize that these metaphors are the way Orthodox and medieval Christians thought about her, you start realizing we've just been ignoring them. Interesting. Does, um, do you see, uh, shall we say, goddess-interested spiritual feminists who talk about the great goddess, look at the work of Maria Gambudis, look at uh, goddess figures in Neolithic cultures. Do you see that as related to Mary or something totally different? 
Well, that's that's like asking whether Christianity is related to all previous traditions. Um, and and it's it's a it's a hard question to ask because we don't know. Right. And, and this I I was saying, um, you know, to one of my history classes just this week, it's it. Well, maybe I was thinking anyway, blah, blah, blah. I'm a historian because I'm fascinated by the claim that God became incarnate in time. Right. Which leaves you with this huge problem. But what about everything before? Right. Was God just ignoring creation? Was there no access to the truth in earlier traditions? Um, and can, you know, modern can people can people born before Christ go to heaven? Well, and that's uh, we the harrowing of hell came up in class yesterday, and some people were saying, "What's that?" And it's like, well, at the crucifixion, Jesus descends into hell and brings back up everybody from oh. hell who was had died before. So that that's solved. But but the the problem of revelation and the problem of how do we see God clearly prior to the incarnation is obviously you know historically incredibly challenging to answer and. Um, what I say about the, the Mary and relationship to, you know, other um, Near Eastern traditions that are contemporary with the composition of the Old Testament, it's clear that somehow the Old Testament is in conversation with those traditions, right? And and I mean, the most famous thing that happens with the um, the goddess worship, as as it were, is that King Josiah has the Asherah thrown out of the temple, right? And yeah. The, the challenge for Christians is, well, but, you know, in a way, the Asherah does come back in Mary. What's the Asherah? And, and is it, is it you know, a perversion? Is it pollution? Or is it um, that, you know, the Judaism to this day rejects the Messiah uh, at Jesus, right? It rejects Jesus as the Messiah and rejects, therefore, Mary. That, you know, is, I, I think there's, there's, there's clearly fraught competing traditions of interpretation right there, which go back to the New Testament. It's like, do we recognize Jesus as Lord, become incarnate through through Mary, or is Mary a whore who, you know, had sex with a Roman soldier? These are the early slanders against her. And, you know, it's all a lie, right? Well, the worry about um, false traditions is 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 clearly a feature in, in the Old Testament. I, I say with what Christianity becomes and what the earliest Christians start saying about Mary is they are hearkening back to the ancient temple tradition um, in which it was expected that the Lord would become present um, in the ways that I've described, right? Enthroned on the, on the Ark of the Covenant um, with, interestingly, um, various other sort of symbols present in the temple, like the candelabra, um, the the, the seven branch candelabra, which is a flowering tree in Revelation, the, the lamb is seated on the throne next to the flowering tree. Well, in Marian tradition, um, one of the most important texts is Ecclesiasticus 24, um, in which wisdom speaks of herself as all these trees. Right. So, in fact, what the Marian tradition is doing is is um, proclaiming that. Um, Jesus is actually the Lord who, with whom wisdom was at the beginning of creation and that she is there with him in the temple now. And that's why Mary carries all of these symbols. Now, these are not it's 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 not to say that she's therefore all goddesses. Right. Because the Christian claim about creation and about God's relationship to 
creation as our creatures, the, the, the claim about the incarnation, all of those are theologically particular to Christianity. And so is the claim that God became incarnate through her, right? That's not the same thing as just mother goddess of nature. But, yeah, but that that's looking at specific um, Middle Eastern texts. Suppose just in an imaginative history, Christianity comes into, let's say, some area of Italy and which has a goddess tradition. And it says, we've got this system here. And they say, well, how does that relate to us? And then we've got this goddess. And they say, well, we've got Mary. Uh, oh, okay. That's just another name for what we've been doing all along and makes it more acceptable. Is it possible that kind of thing happened? Um, well, so I, I've talked about my, um, courses on the early Middle Ages. I also I also write about um, this problem of conversion in my first book, From Judgment to Passion. Um, I have a chapter in there on the conversion of the Saxons. And I, I realized when I was thinking that for the most part, you know, the conversion of of um, places like, you know, England or um, some of the regions of Northern Europe was moderately peaceful. With the Saxons, it wasn't because Charlemagne you know, waged war against them for 33 years um, in order to 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 bring them under control because of the border problems that they were creating. But after Charlemagne had brutally, um, you know, taken over Saxony, then the 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 second and third generation of Saxons start asking questions about you know sort of how does the mass work? What is this real presence? And in in the chapter in my book, from Judgment to Passion, on this question, I show the way in which the whole conversation of conversion has to take place in a in a way that you understand the 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 symbolism and the and the worldview of the people to whom you're talking in order to bring them to the understanding of Christianity. And I I think that's it's different from saying it's syncretist, right? It's it's saying Christian missionaries knew that in order to persuade people to see the the truth of the creation and the truth of the creator's love and the truth of the incarnation and and the resurrect and the you know the cru the crucifixion and resurrection they would need to, to to find the terms that made sense to people and so for the most part that's and and that was the advice that gregory the great gave to the missionaries to to england saying if you find something that you can use to help them see the christian truth you can work with that including what Gregory famously told Abbot Miletus, um, their temples, right? If you can reconsecrate them and have them do the sacrifices for God instead of for, for their demons, then it's appropriate. But th that is making the claim that God is in fact so present in his creation that even people who have not been shown the, the truth of the revelation have inklings of it and and this is the argument that develops in the 16th century in the encounters with the the Native Americans. Um, they must have had some access to the divine by reason, but they don't have the full truth because they haven't been shown um, Christ. And so, what you know, would there be other you know mother goddesses? Well, you could say yes. That's a misunderstanding of Mary. And and in the in the mission field, that tends to be the way the arguments were made. Interesting. So let's go to a parallel area here, because you talk about Mary and prayer. And let me ask uh, another, another maybe too big a question. What is prayer? <laughs> How does it work? What's that all about? 
Um, so in in the in the tradition that I'm writing about, it's it's grounded in a monastic discipline, right? So prayer is, the, I mean, the the short phrase is it's lifting the mind to God, right? But the 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 problem of doing that is you need to train your attention so as to be perfectly focused on God, and that that takes um, both the the discipline of the body and the discipline of the mind and the heart and the and the spirit. And in so in the tradition that I'm writing about, prayer is it's caught up in this whole complex of practices, which include saying the divine office, which include saying you know private petitions, which include you know creating the world of prayer that you live in, the the, the buildings and the music and the and the devotional art and so forth. So I mean the the I guess the the thing that I would say I, I say this on my homepage when I'm saying what I what I think I'm up to. I'm trying to understand worship as a creative act. And I see prayer as that, right? It's an, it's a, it's that attention that then issues in the desire to um, praise the beloved, to um, you know m- make um, representations of the beloved in the sense of either descriptions in words, in, in say in poetry, or um, songs that you are using to describe the beloved, or because with Christianity we have the incarnation and therefore the possibility of, of visible art, all of those. So prayer is that entire complex. And that's why in my my book I call it Marrying the Art of Prayer, because mm-hmm. prayer issues into this, um, at least in Christianity, this this desire to show the beauty of um, what people have, what you have perceived through your attention to, to God and contemplation. So if one prays properly for some amount of time, what does that do? How is one different? It transforms your vision. Um, that, that, that is what I wanted to show in my book that um, I said, you know, devotion requires an object. And it's I, I drew off of Elaine Scarry's meditation and body and pain on in her book on the body and pain on the the problem of the imagination. How if we if you say so to somebody, imagine something and you imagine a unicorn, you think of imagination as as about the the, the not real, right? Where is if you say imagine food and you're hungry, it's it's in fact a motivation for action, right? And devotion is similar, right? It's like we're shaped by the thing that we attend to or shaped by the the love that we project onto things. So if you love, you know, food or sex or, you know, graphic violence or, you know, success or all those you've made your idol, that that's what you're devoted to and it will shape your life, right? Whereas if you have devoted yourself to God and Mary makes, you know, obviously the incarnation makes it easier because we can focus on Christ. But Mary helps us focus on Christ because, she, and that's it. The art is always framed. She's she holds the it, when in the seated images, she's seated holding the child. She's literally a frame for him, right? Physically, you see her in framing the child. That the it, they're all ways of focusing, focusing, focusing your attention, so that by attending to God as the beloved, you are transformed into the image and likeness of God, mm. ultimate, ideally. Now, as an academic, um, I'm going to ask you a difficult one. Is it, are you attempting to do what you just described for your students or help them do that for themselves or providing them with historical information? I do both. 
Um, and the, the best example is the course that I taught on Mary and Mariology. And I give them um, two, I mean, we read various texts and so that I was showing them that it's an intellectual history problem, right? How do they talk about Mary over the centuries? Um, but for their final project, I gave them the option, right? They could either write a, an academic paper on, you know, a, a sort of scholarly question of interpretation or development or something like that, or they could make a work of devotion. Um, and, and for the works of the devotion, they also had to write a paper explaining how they did the, the research for it. And that I, I got just, I, I get shivers thinking about the, 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 some of the projects that the students made. I mean, one student made, she was interested in the symbolism of flowers that were used, particularly in the early modern period for prayer. I did a paper on praying to Mary with flowers and this student was very interested in that idea. And, but she was also skilled in doing um, textile work. So she made, she did the, all the research for this, a stomacher that a woman would have worn in the 18th century um, and found the, the flowers that would be appropriate for symbolizing Mary and then researched all the stitches in the embroidery to be exactly the kind of stitch work that someone would do in the 18th century. It was exquisite, right? That she, she worked herself into the artistic problem as well as the intellectual. I had another student who chose to do a, a sort of replica page from a book of hours. And again, she had to go out and find a proper example. She had to do all the research she could on what pigments they would be, what, you know, what colors she had to, you know, do the calligraphy to, to transcribe the prayer text that she chose that in, in, in modeling themselves on the works of devotion of the past or making their own, they are inside that, that, that devotional question that I was, I was posing to is what, what, what transforms you when your attention is, is focused in this way? Great. Um, are you familiar enough with, say, Buddhist meditation to comment on what might be similarities and differences between prayer, the way you're talking about it, and Buddhist meditation? I, I'm not with the, I, it's been a very long time since I studied Buddhism in any detail. Um, I'm, I'm a somewhat more familiar with the, the yogic meditational practices. Mm -hmm. I used, I used Patanjali and the Bhagavad Gita in a course I did on spiritual exercises. And that, that course on spiritual exercises was my sort of most sort of methodologically experimental course, because I, I gave them both a text to read and then an exercise each week. Um, and you know, what was interesting with, for example, the Patanjali sutras is we read them, um, I can't remember either before or after we read the rule of St. Benedict and realized that many of the practices that the Benedictine monks were developing and many of the miracles that, for example, Gregory the Great says Benedict, you know, performed are similar to the kinds of powers that Patanjali describes the yogi developing. So I, you know, you're asking about the sort of deep back history of all of this. Eurasia is obviously a very complicated and fascinating continent. Right. <laughs> um, and, and there were there, you know, we know that there are references in antiquity to gymnosophists in Alexandria who were apparently coming from India, that it's not, it's, it's, it's not impossible. And, and I think probably pretty likely that many of these contemplative techniques have been shared across um, the old world as it were. And uh, you know, that the, I'm, I'm, you know, I, made the strong argument for the particular Christian theology, I do think it matters because Christianity does make claims about reality that 
I, I obviously find persuasive and and also I think are beneficial to the world. But the historical problem of how humanity has developed its spiritual understanding, I don't th I think we are nowhere near beginning to be able to answer that. Um, so let me then ask, um, what's your what's your what's going on with you in the contemporary world? How have you become somewhat of a controversial figure, et cetera? Oh, I'm friends with Milo Yiannopoulos, don't you know? <laughs> well, that sounds pretty dangerous. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely telling the story of how we met. I wrote to him. He wrote back and we're friends, you know, for three years. And I, what I, you know, I encourage your listeners to consider, why would Milo be friends with me? You've just heard me talking about history and Christianity and devotion and prayer and art. It's like, what, what does a troll want with that? Um, and of course, the of course it, it's it, what I saw in him from the beginning was someone who understood all of these mysteries that I've just been describing to you but was performing them uh, in the world right so oh. that he he knows how to put on characters and masks and um make you know the sort of delight I, I did a post recently on my blog my blog is fencing bear at prayer which is where a lot of my mischief has happened say that again slowly fencing bear at prayer right Right. And, and there's a post on it so a few weeks ago um, on clowns of God. And I'm talking about a Milo. There's a picture of Milo there in a clown suit that he was photographed in um, in a for an article a few three years ago, right when I first started writing to him. And I was writing to him about, you know, the the um, their miracle stories of the tumbler who tumbles out of joy for Mary. And she accepts that as his his prayer practice, as it were, and that this this problem of what do you do with the mischief in the margins, right? And like medieval prayer books will have all those those grotesques and you know capering monkeys and other animals and such going on, and, and nobody ever knows what to do with those. Why do you have all that that mischief going on in the margins? And I said, well, that is what Milo is doing because he wants you to look at the center, which is Christ, right? And and he 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 is he grew up Catholic. His mother is Jewish, so he has Jewish ancestry, but he, he was raised by his, his paternal grandmother and is is Catholic and um, is trying, as just as I in my scholarship am trying to tell you the history, he's trying to show people what it's like to, to live that joy. Fantastic. So just that association thrusts you into uh, the contemporary online discourse? Oh, they're layers. I also made some comments about how I thought my colleagues in medieval studies were being a little alarmist about things that they didn't need to be. Uh, that helped. <laughs> oh, what, um, were, what were those things? Um, well, so even before I met Milo, and it's also, I think, one of the reasons he wrote back to me when I told him what I'd been up to, I wrote on the blog on Fencing Bear a, a post called Three Cheers for White Men, um, which was well, meant to you in trouble. <laughs> This was back 2015, January, J June 2015, meaning to say, you know, this tradition that everyone in the in the current mode seems to feel the need to 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 bash and destroy and claim is is the source of all evil, in fact, was the source of many of the things that particularly women value greatly. Um, I mentioned that in the the theological tradition, Mary is considered to have been 
you know, asked for her consent at the Annunciation, that 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 sense of marriage is constituted by consent is one of the great sacramental claims of, of the high middle ages that we say I do and both man and woman are expected to have to say it um, was protection for women. Um, likewise, um, chivalry, which again is, you know, fallen out of favor, but you know, that you set the woman on a pedestal and serve her, um, you know, there's Marian devotion, devotional elements in that, but that there is, you know, respect for women and, and, and expectation that, um, you know, she, she, she needs winning, um, in order for her to say yes, that it, it takes a long time to develop. And I did a series of blog posts talking about, well, no, of course, I don't think just, just because, you know, uh, Mary's, you know, devout, you know, Christian men never raped anybody. But if you look at the legal codes for the Middle Ages, we were just looking at one yesterday in the Medieval England course, the, the, the penalties for rape were very, very severe from the very beginning, right? In the Anglo-Saxon law codes, the penalty for um, ravishing a woman, you know, whether a servant girl or a, or a, a, was 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 her wear guild, which in legal terms means um, rape was considered as serious as murder. And um, when William William the Conqueror, who is not a good guy in many ways, right, wipes out the Anglo-Saxon nobility, um, uh, the Peterborough version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle stipulates that according to William's law, if a peasant if, if if someone raped a peasant woman, he would pay with the member with which he played, which means uh -oh. castration for rape. Right? That should that should be the delight any feminist right? yeah. <laughs> today. Rape, you know, castrate the rapists. Well, it's back there in the medieval law codes, and that was my point about three tears for white men. And I meant white in the sense of European, right? And everybody obviously went off and said, "Oh, she's a white supremacist." And I'm like, that was not what I meant. You all want to see it in those terms, and that was exactly what I was pushing back against, this vilification of the very tradition out of which the terms that you use to criticize the tradition came. Um, and because I pushed back on that, and you know, a number of colleagues spent some time in social media writing about me as, you know, once I started being friends with Milo as a white supremacist and a Nazi and a Nazi supporter and such like that, I pushed back. And said, well, okay, I have to signal I'm not a white supremacist. And I pointed to the colleague who'd been making the most uh, vicious claims about me. Um, that eventuated in a letter that 1,500 or so of my academic colleagues around the country signed telling the university that they needed to chastise me. Um, all of this is related in full in a little book that Milo wrote about me and the, the controversy called Middle Rages, which you can oh. you can find um it's linked on my homepage, but you can also find it on Amazon and at Castelia House, which is our publisher. Great. So, any uh, as we wrap up here, anything else you want to say about either your uh, Christian interests or contemporary culture? Well, the thing that I hope most is that people will be willing to give it a try, right? Um, I, I have had... Um, very happy responses to my book that people say it's been encouraging them to say the rosary. Um, I, I The book is actually not about the rosary, but about the office of the Virgin. And I've noticed that sales of the uh, the, the the newer edition of, of the office, which is, um, it's, a, it's a lovely, oh, I should have had it with me with which press it was. There's an older version that I have, I have right here that's the um, Baronius press. And, and there's a more recent one, but you can get the hours of the Virgin, read them, 
let yourself see what they actually say, because I think um, people will typically be surprised that they're mainly psalms, which means you're praising God. And that is that was the, the, the focus of the devotion to Mary in the Middle Ages. It was always about learning to praise God. And um, in my own experience, learning to pray these these texts gives you great joy. Great. Well, thank you. This has been fantastic. Uh, our guest has been Rachel Fulton Brown. And once again, it's uh, your blog is Fencing Bear at Prayer. Great. Fencing Bear at Fencing like dueling, right? Yes, I am actually a veteran foilist. Um, right. And <laughs> this, this is John LaBelle, your host. You've been listening to Visionaries on PRN.FM, the Progressive Radio Network. See you next week and thank you. Thank you.